Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. So I lied. I lied. I didn't mean to lie. I didn't know I was lying at the time. I meant it when I said it, but I lied nonetheless. My bad. So last week, I said that we were going to do an interview with Tarana Burke, founder of Me Too and the author of the New York Times bestseller, You Are Your Best Thing. And I said this week, we would be back with our usual commentary. And there's much, much, much to commentate on. But I was so moved by the conversation with Tarana last week. And a lot of you were as well. Many, many, many of you, way more than usual, wrote in with thoughts about the conversation with Tarana and things that you related to. Many, many of you wrote in to tell me that you purchased the book and you started reading and what essays were really standing out to you. So I'm glad that the book resonated with you as much as it did with me. But I didn't feel like I was done with the conversation after last week. I mean, Tarana understood the assignment. She did give what was supposed to be gave. But there was more that I wanted to talk about. You know how I get like obsessive about things sometimes? A big chunk of Tarana and I's conversation was discussing an essay called Dirty Business by Tanya Denise Fields. I even read an excerpt from her essay because it really just hit me in the chest. So instead of talking about Tanya Denise's essay, I wanted to talk to her. So I DM'd her and I was like, sis, can we? And she was like, sis, we can. So we had a really great conversation that I'm really excited to share with you in just a moment. (laughs) We do have one thing I want to discuss first. Not that I really want to discuss it, but I feel like y'all will shoot me if you realize that I recorded this Monday night after the news broke and I didn't mention it. As a general rule, I don't really talk much about reality TV Much of what you think is reality is not. Sorry to disappoint. A storm began to brew yesterday on Mother's Day when Real Housewives of Atlanta star Portia Williams, she posted a series of pictures celebrating Mother's Day with her child's father. He's been an on-again, off-again boyfriend, fiance. I know there was a ring involved at one point and then the ring went away. I honestly don't watch Real Housewives of Atlanta and don't follow the public storylines of of the women. That said, she's posing with her children's father and then also with another man. And people in the comments pointed out, they said, well, one, she's wearing this ring. Does that mean she's back on with the kid's father? But if she's with the kid's father, why is her body language giving so much energy to this other man? Because I thought when I first looked at the pictures that the man who she kept resting her hand on his chest in every photo, I was like, oh, that must be the child's father. And then this other man is just some random man because that's what the random man looked like. But it turns out the man who looks like the random man is the child's father and the random man is her new boo, who also, I don't believe him to be recently divorced. I believe he's recently separated. So let me back up for a moment. Many people were confused by the presence of the child's father and then Portia all up on this other man. So without even knowing the context, I was like, so wait, she spent Mother's Day with the child's father. She has him there, but she's all up on this other dude. Like, why does he even need to be there? That wasn't really making sense to me. Gentlemen, who Portia is giving this energy to, it would turn out that his name is Simon. I'm not sure if he's an estranged husband or an ex-husband. One of those of a woman that Portia says that she is not friends with. However, Phelan, who appeared on Real Housewives of Atlanta for just a couple episodes one season, but she was introduced as Portia's friend. Portia and her sister and someone else that I'm not familiar with went to Phelan and her husband, because Phelan and the husband were together at the time. Phelan invited her friends to her home. They came in their bathing suits and they hung out with Phelan and her husband at their pool. 
it seemed on camera at least to be the first time that Portia had met Phelan's husband. That was their introduction through this woman, Phelan, who was described as Portia's friend. So people had a lot of questions and Portia addressed them today in a very lengthy Instagram post. She put up a picture of herself and Mr. Simon with his glasses on. She looks very beautiful in the picture. She's a gorgeous woman. Um, she says of Simon, our relationship began a month ago. Yes, we are crazy in love. You go on Instagram official after a month? Okay. Yes, she is. She says, I know it's fast, but we are living life each day to its fullest. I choose happiness every morning and every night, tuning out all negative energy and only focused on positive wishes. He makes me so happy. And to me, that is what matters most. She also writes, for all of you that need facts, I get the optics, but Simon filed for divorce from a previous marriage in January. Okay, so that's why I don't know whether to call him estranged or ex. Is the divorce final? Because filing for divorce five months ago, it usually takes a little longer than that to get your divorce finalized. But I'm thinking like New York and Maryland where you have to be separated for a year before you can even file. That may not be the case in Georgia. I don't know Georgia's divorce laws at all. So again, I don't know if this is an ex-husband or an estranged husband. I think it's better if he's officially an ex, but a man who got divorced in January, he still ain't right. You don't be married to a whole person in January and got your mind right by May. It's not possible. I'm telling you that as a divorced person, it is not possible. It's not enough time to do actual real self-work and figure out like, the shit that you contributed to the demise of your marriage, which you need to figure out before you jump into another relationship. I know people do dumb shit all the time, but because it's frequent doesn't mean it's right or sensible or logical. So estranged is the best case scenario here, which is still a bad case scenario. Worst case scenario is you go on Instagram official with a man who's still married. Portia spent Mother's Day. She appeared to have what looked like an engagement ring on her finger. And I was like, so he married and engaged? He won't be the first. My friend is going through a divorce right now. It's been going on forever. Her ex-husband is an ass. But he's also engaged to somebody else. And I said the same thing to her. And I was like, how are you going to be engaged and married at the same damn time? That's a lot. Portia had more to say. She said that she had nothing to do with their divorce filing. That was between the two of them. She's maintaining he filed for divorce in January. And I guess she began dating him in April. So that's, that's three months between the filing for divorce. They're not divorced. I highly doubt he's actually divorced. I was like, sis? And I call you sis with love. You Instagram official with somebody else's husband? That's messy. He's messy and so are you. Messy mofos make messes. What old folks like to say, you lay down with dogs, you get up with fleas, sis, sis, I'm telling you what I know, you're about to be itching, both of y'all, but maybe, maybe, just maybe, hear me out, y'all might deserve each other, like I'm all for, you know, be happy, caution to the wind, live your life, find joy, blah, 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 I don't say this is messy out of some sense of respectability politics, I say it's messy because it's messy. It's unnecessarily risky. And it looks grimy as shit. One thing that I'll give Portia that may or may not be working in her favor, just because you are called friends on TV does not mean you're friends in real life. I genuinely don't watch the show. I don't know if there was another storyline that emerged from this character being introduced. I assume there was more to the story than we just went to this woman's house and that was it. And I'm, I'm taking total stabs in the dark here. She may have had a conflict with another cast member, and this was a way to bring her onto the show. We're going to introduce her character through you. Again, all this shit is scripted. And just in case you're like, well, that was your show. Yeah, there are producers that are on my show that work on this show. Just FYI. I don't know. 
I remember on my show, we went on this boat ride on the final episode and it was attributed to, well, Demetria is a blogger, so she gets all these perks. And so Demetria is going to say she got an offer to go on this like free boat ride, blah, blah, blah. That's not how that happened. The producers wanted a beautiful setting for the finale. We were a first season show, so we didn't have a big budget to go on vacation. They couldn't finagle hookups from the tourism board because, again, first season show, unproven. So tourism boards didn't want to, like, churn out the money. That's who pays for those trips, FYI. That's why they're thanked in the credits because they foot the bill, at least a large chunk of it. But for that final episode of, like, season one, the producers, they wanted something very sexy and New York as the setting for the final episode. So they were like, okay, we secured this boat, and this is how we needed to be introduced. So Demetria say this this way and we're going to shoot it four or five times and from different angles and until you get the lines right. Okay. So is Phelan really her friend? I have no clue. It looks bad, but she does kind of sort of have an out here where she might not be as grimy as she seems. She actually genuinely may not be friends with this woman. Knowing what I know, especially about reality TV, I can't throw her under the bus for being friends with the woman. Because like hanging out at somebody's house. And that's like your homegirl. And then you start fucking a husband. And then go Instagram official with him. Like while the divorce is still pending. I don't believe in violence. If Phelan showed up and beat her black ass. And whooped her ass somewhere in Atlanta. I wouldn't say Phelan was right. But I wouldn't say Phelan was wrong. I say I understand. I'm just saying. Let's hope that they really aren't friends. Let's hope that that was for production's sake. Otherwise, Portia Wilding. I'm going to date my friend's estranged husband while the divorce is pending. After I done been in her house and drank her liquor and ate her food and swam in her pool. It looks bad. And it just looks real naive to be Instagram official with somebody else's husband after a month talking about we in love. Like, sis... The judgment doesn't seem strong here. I know sometimes you meet people and just throw caution to the wind. I do understand. I have been there. I also managed to keep that shit off the internet so I don't get clowned and embarrassed. Let me tell you something. One thing that's been consistent with a lot of men that I've encountered in my life is they will embarrass you. That first 30 days is one person. Steve Harvey always says, like, you know, 90 days. 90 days is when you meet the real person. It's actually more like day 31. People can't even hold out for like a whole probationary period anymore. They'll give you a good 30 days. And then after that, it's like, well, here's who the fuck I am. So sis jumping out here real bold. I mean, and this dude is just as messy as she is. Whether she's friends with this woman failing or not, this man is the one who was married to her. The kind of dude who will embarrass himself by dating a friend of his estranged wife or woman he was introduced to through his ex-wife because she came to their home. That's a grimy dude. So I don't know if Portia has picked up on that. Like maybe all she sees is, is the dollar signs. Apparently he has a lot of money. You ain't married to him to access it yet. And Sister Farron going to take a good chunk of it. And he's going to come to you with a prenup. So I don't know how much of it you're going to be able to access, sis. I don't know if Portia thought this one quite through all the way. Maybe Simon Sir is laying good pipe because this is, this is uh, making what seems to be, even if you take the, the friendship with the wife out of it, if that part doesn't even exist, like this just seems like some real questionable shit. This just seems like some real unnecessarily risky shit. Like you so in love with them. Okay, great. Keep it off the internet for a good six months. Get some consistency. Actually get to know him. And if it works out, you know, after his divorce is final, then maybe come and share with us about your new love. Like this? I wouldn't recommend being Instagram official with somebody with 640, with 640 followers. Definitely not 6.4 million. Or, or, we didn't discuss this angle. This is her full-time job. Being on Bravo, I mean, she's got businesses that she's built out from there, but they're built on the publicity that she gets from being a member of Real Housewives of Atlanta. Okay, nothing wrong with that. That's your choice. But she also got to stay on the show. 
Your storyline get too dry, they'll replace you with somebody who's willing to be messier. This does guarantee her next season, especially when folks been complaining all year about how dry this one was. And I swear to you, I do not watch this show. It's just enough other people watch it that I get the fringes of commentary about it. But she's definitely getting a peach and a check next season with this shit. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. One last word. I hope it works out for her. I genuinely do. And I only say that because I don't like seeing black women publicly embarrassed. Because this man is just as messy as she is. But when it all blows up, which hopefully it won't, but when it all blows up, she's going to be the one that takes the hit for it. They're going to be like, well, she should have closed her legs to married men. She shouldn't have been fucking that lady husband. As opposed to, why was that lady husband fucking with his ex-wife's friend? Men always get passes for these things. It's like, well, what did you expect? He wanted to smash. So that's that. There's also speculation that she may be pregnant, which is solely based on the fact that she wore a caftan on Mother's Day as opposed to something fitted. I don't know. I hope she's not pregnant for a man she's only known a month. But I hope it doesn't blow up in her face just because I just hate seeing black women get dragged. So can we talk about the rest of everything else next week? We're going to have to because we're about to talk to Sister Tanya, Tanya Denise Fields. She is the author of Dirty Business, an essay in Tarana Burke and Brene Brown's New York Times bestseller, You Are Your Best Thing. She is the founder of the Black Feminist Project, and I'm completely enamored with her writing. After I read her essay in this book, I I found her online and I was all up in her Instagram reading her captions. I found as much of her writing as I could. She is a phenomenal writer, which is a product of being a phenomenal thinker. So I'm very, very happy that she agreed to come on Ratchet and Respectable and speak with us today. Please welcome Tanya Denise Fields to Ratchet and respectable. I am so excited to speak with you. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to last week's episode. I talked to Tarana about You Are Your Best Thing, New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. I know, surreal. Thank you. (laughs) You're, You're so welcome. But we spent a significant part of our conversation talking about your essay, which is the third one in the book. And I was like, you know, we, we done talked about Tanya. We done read excerpts from Tanya's essay. <laughs> Y'all should probably just go ahead and get Tanya on the phone and see if she'll come talk to us about shame and radical Black joy, I think is how you refer to where you are now. And, and the thing that I was most interested in speaking to you about is you talk about all the things that you were ashamed of. And, and there was a long list. And, and like you, I also have a long list. Um, I'm not as bold as to list them all in a, in a New York Times bestselling book. I wasn't quite as bold either, but like that first draft, Tarana was like, you know, she's a Virgo too. We both Virgos, you know, so we, we talk very directly. And Tarana was like, this is cute, but this, <laughs> I, need you to, I need you to go further. Like, girl, like I've advocated, I'm making sure people getting, getting, get, you know, getting paid what they worth. We really got to dig deep. We are, we are trying to break barriers and, and free folks here. So I need to know that you're really down. And if you're really down, I need you to dig deeper. And I was like, okay, girl. (laughs) And I dug a little bit deeper. And then she was like, I need you to dig just a little bit more deeper. And I put it off and I put it off. And then like the weekend before she needed it, she was like, girl, let's just do a die time. You either gonna, you're gonna shit or you're gonna get off the pot. Right. And I can I can understand if you want to get off the pot, because what I'm asking you to do is no easy task. Don't overthink this. I need for you to go into the darkest places of 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 your psyche or whatever you want to call it. And I need for you to dredge up that stuff that keeps you awake at night. Right. I need you to be really honest about, you know, how you've gotten through this. Right. Because what you've done in these last couple of years has been tremendous because Tarana and I are personal friends. So she knew we had already had these conversations. And I took a weekend to do it. Now, before I had like gone off to Tarrytown and got a room and made sure I had wine and I set the mood and I got something, but it, you know, it it wasn't, it didn't bring up what I thought it was going to bring up. And so then I spent a weekend at home. All my kids are there. I got six kids, three cats, a dog, um, and everybody's there. And I'm like, I just need for y'all to just, I'm going to build this wall around myself. And I took over the the kitchen table and I just 
grounded myself in what was really important to me. And part of it, you know, part of like the letting go of shame piece was also like your family also needs to know just how much you've come through. Um, and so they got to see all of it. They got to see me dancing. They got to see me crying. They got to see me dancing while crying. They got to see me laughing. You know, they got to see me pacing the the living room, smoking a joint. Like, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a weekend that really took a lot out of me. And then when I was finally, you know, ready, like at literally like the last minute at like 1158 PM Eastern time, I was like, all right, I'm ready. And I sent, I sent it. And then I texted to Ron and I said, this is it. You know, like I sent it in and, and, and I'm having all the anxiety and, and let me know. And three days later, she hit me back. She was like, woo child. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what we were. We were at woo child. That was my first reaction. Like I got through the second paragraph and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I had to stop and start over again. <laughs> And for the people who didn't listen last week, do you mind if I read, can I read your words back to you? Is that weird? Yes, absolutely. In the second paragraph, because you just, you go all in, you was like, I've been ashamed of of being dark, of having a broad nose, of my big lips and my prematurely developed body, and later of my fat body with its rolls, saggy titties, hanging belly, and stretch marks. I felt deep shame for not going to a better school, for not getting a good traditional job, for my struggles, for my literal hunger, for having six babies with four men who abandoned us. Sometimes I was ashamed of being the one who stayed. I want to know how you get to the place and not just sitting down in the living room and writing this, but there is a, a place that you have to get to overall in your life where you can just make a list of your shit mm-hmm. and put it out into the public and just be like, well, that's what it is. Right. For me, I had spent so much time online in the public's in the in the sort of public eye online, you know. There is like, you know, being visible, like Cardi B visible, right? And then there's like these orbs <laughs> online where people are like, you know, Facebook famous or IG famous or Twitter famous. You know, when I am a Facebook fame. And, and so I spent an inordinate amount of time several years ago being trolled by folks who all of those things that I listed, uh, people would use to needle me, get under my skin to evoke a response that they felt was rooted in shame and that I rightfully should be ashamed of. And then it got to a point where it was like, all right, well, bitch, I am fat. Like, so like, is that the worst thing in the world to be? Okay. So you think I'm ugly and is the world going to stop because you don't desire me? And I also don't owe you prettiness and you look like the dirty side of a wash rag. So what the fuck am I listening to you for? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and then also realizing that none of us, like everybody shit stink. Right. And also like having an under like deepening my understanding of where these things come from. Right. Like reading folks like Sonia Renee Taylor, who's also in the book, who, again, is a personal friend, has taught me so much about like how, you know, fat antagonism and anti-blackness and misogynoir is directly related to capitalism. Like, girl, if you feel this way, it's because somebody intentionally made you feel this way. It was from getting coaching from people like Stacey Shelton, who was like, girl, you don't just go get self-esteem. Like, it's not just, you know, like it wasn't delivered by Amazon. Like, this is something that is intentionally embedded in us as black women and black femme presenting folks, right? And that the only way I was going to get undone from that was to acknowledge it, to mine it, to really sit in the ways that it made me feel, and then to 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 disown it, to say this is not like the way I feel is real, but this is not reality, right? And like this is not going to serve me, right? And so I can have these feelings, but how do I how do I sit in it enough and then be like, okay, this is, this, this is a useless feeling that is only going to continue a cycle of being stuck and a cycle of shame that will color the decisions that I make. And then those decisions may not give me the kind of outcome that I see for my life. And a large part of that also was like, bitch, go to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, 
we you like we can read all the books and we can do it but also like go to therapy and then i think also just me as a virgo right we are highly critical people i have very high expectations of other people and so i generally feel like if i expect a lot from others i have to expect a lot from myself and there is a lot that i want out of my life and holding on to these types of feelings that really uh, you know didn't do anything but just keep me stuck in this holding pattern of poor decision-making and poor self-esteem is not going to help me get the things out of life that I want. So at some point, I said the same thing to myself that Tarana told me about this chapter. I'm either going to shit or get off the pot. In the essay, you describe your sort of rock bottom moment where you say, like, I can't do this anymore, is sitting in a police station. You were abused by your partner at the time. Mm -hmm. And you just said like, enough is enough. Mm -hmm. Like what did that moment feel like for you? I don't think there was a time in my life where I felt lower. I don't think there was a time in my life where I seriously considered being like, I probably be better if I was dead. Yeah, I think at that moment, and you know, black women literally can't afford to die, right? <laughs> like we literally cannot afford to die. Like in that moment, if I was seriously considering killing myself, the thing that snapped me back to reality was like, who in the hell is going to take care of six kids and I don't want my six kids broken up? So girl, you you go to the therapy, get your altar together, go get a divination, get some readings, let somebody lay some hands, whatever it is, you have to do it because there is, like if you don't love yourself enough, do you love your kids enough, right? And I thought about like, I think for me in that moment, I really thought about myself through the lens of what if my, what if one of my children were going through this? Mm. How would I show up to support them? What things would I say to them to provide them comfort? What behavior would I engage in to support them? And then I said to myself, well, then do all that shit for you. Because quite honestly, at the basis of that is my need to reparent myself, right? And I think I, I touch on that a little bit in the chapter. So much of this stuff is colored by trauma that I have experienced in my childhood and then the ways that that constantly got re-triggered through my teenage years, young adulthood, and then following me into my late 30s. I was like, you need some things um, and you know what you need, and now you have to get healthy enough to give those things to yourself because nobody else is going to give them to you. And if you don't give them to yourself, you will be incapable of giving it to your children. And do you want them to inherit, inherit this sort of warped, irrational, fear-based way of, of, uh, of going out here in the world? I want my children to be tremendous. I want them to be courageous. I want them to be bold. So, you know, kids are going to do what they see and, and do what you do, not do what you say. And so for me, I was like, yeah, then I need to be doing these things. I need to be showing up for myself. I need to be supporting myself. I need to be affirming myself. I need to be gentle and loving with myself. And that's a process. Because one of the things that I, I can I, I keep saying this, like one of the things that I loved about your essay, it's because I really loved your essay, if that's not really clear. Um, <laughs> you talk about um, the ugly process of self-work. Mm -hmm. Online, it's been reduced to like I went shopping or I took a bubble bath or I went on vacation or I went to the spa. But really doing like the work of, of getting out of your own way and like digging into your mess is just ugly and not pretty and it takes forever and it's an up and down and back and forth journey. Can you talk about like what that process is? I've been going to therapy on and off for over a decade, but that's like, you can go to school and still not learn shit, you know, but it was only in the last couple years where I really had to, you know, be like, okay, well you balloon. I've always been, you know, from the time I was like 10, I've been, I've been a, a, a big girl, a fluffy girl, a fat girl, however you want to say it. Um, but then I looked up one day and I was over 300 pounds and I was over 300 pounds and I was a chain smoker and I was over 300 pounds, a chain smoker who was growing healthy food, but wouldn't eat all day and then go home and eat a four or five piece Popeyes, three sides, two biscuits and 32 ounces of, you know, uh, let sweet, sweet tea, because that was probably the only thing throughout the day that made me feel relieved and made me feel comforted and, 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 and made me feel validated. 
Um, and I was able to justify it by being like, well, you ain't eat all day. So this is probably 2000 calories. And I realized it was like a 5,000 calorie meal and then, you know, smoking cigarettes. Right. Um, and then just engaging folks, both platonically and romantically who I knew were not, you know, I don't think that I'm better than anybody. Right. But we know that we have standards and lifestyles and, and expectations, um, for ourselves. And these folks were not equally yoked. Um, and so I had to say that self-care was more than being like, Oh yeah. You know, if I, if I want the ice cream, eat the ice cream, that self-care was more than, Oh, if I want to get my nails done, I want to get my nails done. I think a lot of self-care has been colored by capitalism. Right. So of course the message becomes reduced down to what you can buy, but the process of really sitting with yourself of having a thought and then not suppressing that thought being like, no, I actually thought this thing. And how do I feel when I think that? Because suppressing it doesn't mean that it goes away. It just means you don't think about it anymore, but subconsciously it's still there. And so being like looking in the mirror and saying, I hate my body. Right. And then suppressing that feeling, putting my clothes on and then moving through the world as a person who hated their body. I really had to do that mirror work, right. Where I'm looking at my body and I'm saying, I hate my body. Right. And I'm saying, and then saying to myself, okay, but why do you hate your body? And when did you start hating your body? Right. And then from there being like, I started hating my body when my cousin put his fingers in my vagina mm. and having to sit with how that made me feel having to then go to therapy and talk about that thing and then having to consistently talk about it over and over again and constantly be reaffirmed that me at nine years old, you know, you know, I wasn't experimenting as some of my relatives said when they found out that my 13 year old cousin putting his fingers in my vagina was a bad thing. It wasn't an experiment. Right. And that this was not called experimentation. It was called molestation. Right. And then having to acknowledge that I was a victim of molestation and then having to sit with what does it mean to be a survivor of molestation? Part of the shadow work, part of the mirror work was like naming things. I had spent so much time not naming things. I had spent so much time believing these myths and fallacies that say that nobody has to affirm you. You're just supposed to feel better about yourself. Because, you know, we heard this growing mm -hmm. up in the black community. You know, I don't think people understand that you can conflate confidence with self-esteem, that the two can absolutely be mutually exclusive that I showed up in a lot of spaces as a confident fat woman, but I was a confident fat woman who had zero self-esteem. And that was because I had spent so much time not naming things because so often we hear this messaging, particularly for those of us who are large, particularly for those of us who are dark and we associate these things with strength. We associate these things with violence. We, we associate these things with force, right? We don't extend gentleness or victimhood to folks who look like me. I remember growing up and telling folks, like, I think that I'm ugly. And people wouldn't say to me, like, you know, no one would say to me, I'm sorry that folks made you feel that way. No one would say to me, I'm sorry that you live in a world that has constructed messages that you're less worthy based on these arbitrary, like, Western European standards. There was, there was no language for that. Instead, what I was told was, it doesn't matter what other people say about you. You supposed to, you supposed to feel good about yourself no matter what. And what I'm saying is that's bullshit, and I actively reject that. And that I'm going to be a part of creating a world and it needs to start with me creating a world for myself that says, I am sorry that people said those things to you. I am sorry that you lived in a world that have constructed these sort of arbitrary, you know, Western Europe, Eurocentric standards. I'm going to give this to myself because I'm then going to be an active part of creating a, a, a world or a little bit of a world that also can name these things and say to the little Tanyas that you, like the thing that you're feeling is not because like you're deficient or you've not tried hard enough to feel good about yourself. The thing that you're feeling is literally, literally a reaction to uh, intentional constructs to make you feel bad about yourself because those things like capitalism is propped up on our lack right? Like it doesn't matter what you look like. Capitalism is like, if you want to, if you want to 
be better and more successful in life, you have to consume and 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 purchase all of these these different things. And then you will have the appearance of success. You will have the appearance of beauty, right? And if there is something in your life that is missing, you can buy a thing and it will be better. And the thing is, it's like you can never buy enough. Right. It's the hamster wheel. Talk to me about radical black joy. I'll read it to you because it's your words, but just for the readers <laughs> or the listeners rather. Is this weird me reading your stuff to no, you? Is actually, that strange? I, I have not listened to myself on the audiobook yet because I think it's weird to hear myself speak back to me. So hearing you read it sounds more natural than hearing myself read it back. If it makes you feel better, I've never listened to an episode of my podcast because I can't stand the sound of my voice. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird. Okay. You say, uh, I embrace joy as my birthright. Radical black joy is inherent as a human need and not some special trinket you get after you rise high enough on the socioeconomic ladder or unlock some special level of desirability or accomplishment. I decided I would claim and manifest every fucking thing someone told me that I couldn't do. What is that? Well, you told me what it means to you, but how did you get there? For me, I have spent so much of my life unhappy and people seemed okay with me being unhappy. Even now, you know, I get the occasional troll who pops into a, a, a comment section or approaches me at a talk or every once in a while, it's rare, but every once in a while, someone decides that they want to personally challenge me at almost six feet tall and 200 pounds. You know, these folks who are really perturbed that I, a dark skin, African featured, 200 pound, 5'10", mother of six, would have the nerve to feel good about anything. We have a hierarchy in our society, right? And black women in general are at the bottom of that hierarchy. But even within that, there's a hierarchy of like, who's less valuable within black women, right? And we know that. And we know that goes along the spectrum of colorism, the proximity to whiteness. It feeds into classism and class, what class you're able to uh, have access to is also dictated by those things that I just named. And so at some point I said, but y'all don't get to control whether or not I'm happy, right? Like I'm here, I'm alive. My kids are good. They are happy. We are close, right? Like I am going to construct spaces where women and femmes who look and love and live like me can be happy. Now don't get me wrong. I, I, I joke sometimes that I'm bougetto, that I'm sophista ratchet, but this, this story that I tell, this narrative that I own, this space that I've constructed with the AFCC and the work that I do through the Black Feminist Project, it is about making sure that Tanya's and Tanisha's and Leticia's and every Black girl who has been told that they don't deserve shit because they nappy headed, they too skinny, they too fat, they live in the projects, they got a, a bunch of kids with a bunch of different niggas that you don't now because you've made those choices you don't deserve shit and I am saying to those women they are lying to you they are lying to you because their self-esteem their uh, aspirations their imaginations are so limited that this needs to be true in order for them to believe that they can be successful and an interesting thing has happened not only did women who look and live and love like me come out of wherever they came out of and be like, girl, I've been holding my breath for 10 years and then you said this and I felt like I could breathe again, right? There were also women who got really, and, and men, there were people who got really, really angry with me, who said I was being irresponsible, that I should subscribe to some respectability politic under the auspices of standards. And that in, if I did not do so, then somehow I was enabling or congratulating, as Boyce Watkins said about me, baby mamaism. Mm -hmm. And I don't own that responsibility. We are all inherently deserving of joy. We can have all the conversations, the nuanced conversations. We can get into all the minutia about... Um, you know, what success looks like for us. 
But none of that happens in the absence of joy. It is literally what you ground yourself in. It is the thing that gives you faith. It is the thing that gives you hope. And faith and hope are the things that will drive you forward, that can tell you. I say this thing a lot online. You have the right to change your mind. Mm -hmm. If something in your life has not been working, you have the right to change your mind. For the longest time, I, sw- I I just needed to, I held on to these poor relationships with my kids' fathers because I was like, one of y'all niggas gonna marry me. I need to get married. I can't be nobody baby mother no more, right? And then at some point I changed my mind. Marriage became not so important to me anymore. I got married and stayed married for two years and was like, this is a bad decision. <laughs> But it's so funny. It's just like whether you're a, a, a quote and unquote baby mama, whether you're like a wife who who doesn't believe in submission or you get married and you don't have kids fast enough. Like there's like this arbitrary set of rules of like what women are quote and unquote supposed to do. And I've never really figured out what they all entail because they keep shifting. Right. That's the thing. That's the thing about respectability politics. I just gave a talk about this um, at the, the, what was it? The University of Northern Colorado. This is what I was telling those students, many of them students of color, many of them black girls and women. The, the, the goalpost keeps moving. That's the thing about respectability politics. Some arbitrary portion of the status quo gets to decide what is respectable. And then as soon as you achieve that level of respectability, ah, you know what? Actually, that's not good enough. We're going to do this thing over here. And so for me, I was like, if it's going to keep moving, if it's going to keep shifting, well, then I'm going to do what the fuck I want to do anyway. Because that's the thing that's making me happy. If I'm not terrorizing, maligning, subjugating, you know, disenfranchising somebody else, then I'm going to do what the hell I want. Because these, like, I literally get to construct the world around me. Now, there are some things that I just don't have no control over. Police brutality, state-sanctioned violence, intimate partner violence. Like, I don't get to control how those things show up in the world. But my joyfulness... I get to control that. And I I really do look forward to the day when black joy is not seen as radical, right? The only reason it is seen as radical is because we live in a world that is intentionally and consistently making conditions that result in us being unhappy and that result in us not having access to joyfulness. It's hard to be joyful when your lights are out. It's hard to be joyful when you go up in your neighborhood and it's over police. It's hard to be joyful when you are the victim and the survivor of sexual assault. And there is a criminal justice system that doesn't give a fuck about making sure that it restores some justice to you. It's which brings me to my next point. It's hard to be joyful in, 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 with a penal system that is rooted in, you know, antebellum slave trade and doesn't give a, a good goddamn about restorative and transformative justice. All, it's hard to be joyful when your kids go to school and you know that they're not adequately being uh, uh, educated and they're dealing with teachers who are lobbing microaggressions at them every day. It's hard to be joyful when you can't show up as your full self because trans antagonism, homophobia, queer antagonism robs you of your humanity. Like it's hard to be joyful. So even in the face of all that, if you like, I'm a still be happy. Fuck y'all. That is radical. That is revolutionary because as Toni Morrison said, and the book is a Toni Morrison quote, this is what white supremacy does. It keeps you so distracted. It keeps you so bound up. It tells you that you're not smart. So then you spend all this time trying to prove that you're smart. And then it says, okay, well, you can't really be an artist. So then you prove all your time trying to be an artist. And you spend so much time trying to prove white folks wrong that you never actually get to the root of what makes you happy. To actively focus and spend time trying to rob people, actively, willfully, purposely, intentionally trying to rob people of their joy. That's some diabolical shit. Yep. And it's diabolical and it's pervasive because then we all learn to do it and we enact it on each other intracommunally. That's the gag, honey. To some degree expected from men, just because, you know, we're patriarchy and sexism, it always kills me. It's just, it digs a little bit deeper when it's a woman trying to steal your joy because she hasn't done the mirror work. 
because she hasn't done the work that says when I get bothered by something, when something bothers me, when somebody eats something that ain't going to make me shit and suddenly I'm feeling like I got constipation or I got diarrhea, I ask myself, what is, what is that person reflecting back to you that's making you so uncomfortable? A lot of niggas ain't got that kind of self-awareness though. So instead you make them uncomfortable and they like, okay, it's time for me to come for you. I'm going to snatch your edges. I'm going to say shit and lob ad hominem attacks. I'm going to come for your kids. I'm going to do anything to make you feel less than because somehow that will make me feel better because you are existing in a way that makes me extremely uncomfortable. It upsets me, but it also makes me really sad because I want for us to free ourselves from that. I know that on the other side of letting that go is a little bit of freedom. I've been doing this work for 10 years, girl, 11 years, maybe 12, but you know, whatever. Finally got to the point where I'm making a little, I ain't going to tell you how much I make, but I, I'm making a little, I got access to a little bit of coin where I can do some things. I still got to do all of that stuff under my organization. I still got to file with my fiscal sponsor and all that kind of stuff. All of the ins and outs, that's nobody's fucking business, right? I'm out here working. Y'all see me working every day. So if I buy something, assume that I work for it. No, 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 no. I get folks that will climb up in my DMs, climb up in my mentions and be like, mm, I wish I could be like you using donation money to buy a used Honda. Wow. And I'm like, girl, are you really mad at me about this 2017 pilot? Because there are, st I buy a Maserati, bitch. This is not a Tesla. <laughs> this, is, this is a used car that came with 10,000 miles on it already. Like we got, first of all, you need to set your standards a little bit higher if you think this is what scamming is. But number two, why are you so mad that I went out and got a used Honda? Like she was really bothered by the fact. She was like, you ain't got to stunt no more. You ain't got to stunt no more. Like, stunt for who, girl? I got six kids. I need to get these little motherfuckers around. This is not stunting, <laughs> right? But you're mad that I, the mother of six, doing what you consider charity work, that I went out and actually took care of myself. Because somewhere along the line, someone told her, that she wasn't worthy of taking care of herself because she didn't marry the right nigga or because she had a baby by a deadbeat or because she lives in the projects or because she's fat or because she's not pretty or all of this shit that after I became really honest about the things that go bump in the night that keep me awake, that then black women climbed into my DMs and started saying to me, at which point I had to be like, I am not an LCSW. And um, <laughs> thank you for trusting me enough to hold this. But girl, I want you to go look at this page called, you know, uh, Therapy for Black Girls and find yourself a therapist that you can afford because there's some stuff that you need to get to. I think the idea of being a single mom that you actually like, you know, figured out some life. Right. Like, and can do things for yourself. It just, it goes against everything you've ever been told about like what a single mother is supposed to be a single black mother, especially because single white moms, you know, whatever they move on, get married to a rich man and go live in the suburbs. Right. But single black moms, like you're impoverished and you stay that way forever. And that's the end of the story. Or cause I, I know some of them like, listen, food justice work. All of this work that we do is full of cash poor white people. But they go live in a community house. They dress like a hippie. They smell like patchouli and musk. You know what I'm saying? They figured out through their white privilege how to get their kid into some little private school on a scholarship. And that shit is looked at as bohemian. And when that little white person grows up, <laughs> they can tell endearing stories about it. There might be some struggle in it, but it's like, oh, okay. At least that's what poor white motherhood looks like in the city, right? Because your complexion right? will give you some, it will give you some buffer. It will give you some cushion. For us, what happens is we get robbed of our humanity. Respectability politics robs us of our multiplicity. It robs us of our layers. It robs us of our nuance. So while a single white mother can be a single white mother who still struggles, who might need some safety net help, even if that safety net help looks like an inheritance from her parents or her, her, her just above working class parents being able to pay a couple months rent or the support of her friends, that's not what it looks like for, for black mothers, right? And so if we believe that, then we will then engage in all of the behavior that supports that. 
So it's not like we don't have communities that where we where we help each other. I'm a product of that. I was lucky enough to be able, once I started to get free, once I started to learn and navigate the language, once I started to challenge it, once I decided that I was going to root myself in in in, in an alternative reality of what it meant to be a unmarried black mother, I then was introduced to folks, black women, and some white women too. I'll, I'll tell the truth. I have a lot of criticisms of, of, of white womanhood and white femdom, but I've had white folks, white women who have stepped up and have helped, you know, like people gave me clothes for my kids. Folks got my car out of the toe. You know what I'm saying? People helped me pay my rent. Like, and, 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 and then I did the same for others when the opportunity came up. But if you believe this sort of monolithic, one-dimensional idea of what it means to show up in black motherhood, particularly unmarried black motherhood, well, then you say, I'm not helping her because she shouldn't have went out there and got pregnant by some nigga that she knew wasn't no good. She knew Tyrone was a corner boy, so what's she going to have? Which, why she have a baby with him? Which, you know, yeah, I did know Tyrone was a corner boy. I ain't had no business having a baby with him, but the baby here now. And do we want to build healthy communities, right? Or not. Or, or not. Right? <laughs> But where do I get redemption? Like, why y'all keep trying to, like, flog me with that? That's the other thing. Like, we don't, we we really act like once you've made that poor decision, you don't get a way out now. You're supposed to suffer and toil and live a life of, of, of groveling and poverty because you made that choice. Yeah. And the only way that you can come back from that is to go find a good man who's a simp enough to take care of you and your kids. So you damned if you do and you damned if you don't. And then they just gonna clown him like they do, uh, what's his name, Russell Wilson? Yeah, absolutely. Every time I, my, my boyfriend gets into an argument on my behalf, the first thing they, they mention is that he's a simp because he had the nerve to go and openly love a woman with six children and four baby daddies. If we are so bold to say such a thing without worrying about a almost six foot, 300 pound man going in our mouths, then you got to believe that these are implicit and explicit messages that we hear no matter where we fall along the, the gender spectrum. And we internalize that. And it's pervasive because we don't even realize that we buy into it too and what that looks like and how it shows up. Very often I ask, like, what what is the, the right thing for Black women to do? Because it seems like it's a catch-22 no matter which way you choose. And I think it just all goes back to, like, the profound, profound misogyny, women in general, but especially for Black women. There is no right thing for Black women to do. Not this day and age. And so the right thing for us to do is what makes us happy. Find some joy. Find, find that joy. Find that joy and, and know that in committing yourself to radical black joy, you're going to piss a lot of motherfuckers off. Like black women being happy, black women being able to take care of themselves, black women being able to define their own measures of success makes people mad. And it don't matter who the people are, white people, black people, everybody in between, women, men, non-binary folks like <laughs> everybody everybody's included everybody look at what we like look at the way they dragged patrice colors for being able to buy a house <laughs> like we all just we were all ready to believe the worst she's a scammer then i'm not saying that the black lives matter movement is above reproach i'm not saying that individual activists are above reproach i'm saying that motherfuckers were literally mad that this woman who is an academic who is a who is a a a best-selling author who is a well sought after public speaker who has multiple streams of income we were already based on the raggedy ass racist post ready to crucify her for being able to use those streams of income to buy what really amounts to modest homes and don't let one of those homes be in a neighborhood that happens to have anybody else other than black people in it. She's got to be a scammer because we're all ready to believe the worst about black women. We're all ready to believe the worst about ourselves. And that's scary. That's scary, the way we can so easily turn on one another. That is literally how white supremacy was 
set up. And that's the thing. If we start realizing that we are engaging in white supremacist behavior, maybe we can tap into a little bit more well, like, like a little bit more self-awareness. Right. But this, you know, there's so, there's so many layers to this. There's there so are. many layers. And to And we it. could talk about them all day, but I do want to ask you before we go about the mm-hmm. black feminist project. That's a, that's an organization you started like 10 years ago. Tell me about what, what you do, what your aims are mm-hmm. there. The Black Feminist Project literally is an organization that I created to enrich the lives of, restore agency, justice, joy, and health to Black women, youth, and girls with an emphasis on mother-led families. Really, our organization looks at how do we explore the intersections between food justice and reproductive justice. So what does that look like? We have a farm called the Black Joy Farm that's on Simpson Street, right off 163rd Street in the Bronx, in one of the poorest congressional districts in the country. And we sit on this little, you know, dead-end street with very little green space around in a community that's highly over-policed, and we grow eggplants and tomatoes and cilantro and yarrow and basil, and we have like 12 or 13 fruit trees now and we've got 25 hens that we keep for eggs and we just added bees that we'll harvest for honey and we're building a stage and we have a gazebo and we've got artwork all over our sheds and we just allow people to come in and be they don't have to do anything now you want to get your hands in the dirt you want to learn something we got farmers that are going to teach you how to do that too for a long time i was the farmer and recently in the last year we've been able to hire two farmers and they're men for the folks who are like black feminists just hate black men and want to break break up the black family i am paying at competitive rate to black men because <laughs> black feminists do understand the worthiness and the relationship um, that we have to black men and how we are our our overall health in this country is really going to be tied up in us getting our shit together. Mainly black men doing the work to get their shit together. But girl, you know, that's another podcast for another time. That's another day, another day. Probably would need some alcohol and stuff. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that space has become a radical green growing space. And we started growing there in 2014. We got the license to the space in 2013. We do a program called Sis Do You. Sis Do You. It is our, for lack of a better word, empowerment. I hate that word because it's very paternalistic, but it's the word that people understand. It's our empowerment uh, program for teen girls and femmes and non-men and, and, and young women and femmes and non-men where we get together and we have a meal and we give away money and we give folks stuff that we think that they would like and we have workshops and different discussions and we really beg the question of what does your world look like when you put you at the center mm. of it um we just opened the Alice Fields Community Center for Black Women Girls and Marginalized Genders our permanent spot is under construction we are in a temporary spot that is a little significantly smaller but still pretty big which is like a mashup of a direct services site. Folks can come in and we're building the space out where folks can come in and get diapers and milk and, you know, baby milk formula um, and gently used clothing or donated new clothing where folks can just come and have a seat and hang out. We got a food pantry. We got a food box. You know, we ran a food box last year. We're going to run it again this year. We're going to actually build it out. I'm about to, you know, use some more of my my scamming prowess to buy another used vehicle that we will use for the purposes of being able I can't help myself I'm You're hilarious. Um so I'm, I'm scam some more of these foundations um and use my little scam money to buy another used Honda so we can deliver food to folks who might have challenges be it, you know to come and picking it up. Um but also so we can build a business, right? That's run by black women and girls, you know, like I want the food box to eventually develop into like hello fresh for the hood you know what i'm saying where we are letting folks use their food stamps uh using a sliding scale model where people can order food boxes that are modeled after these sort of uh meal plan services because nobody works harder than black women nobody works harder than black femmes and so if there's anybody who's like 
I don't know who already needs something where it's like, we already gave you just enough meat. We don't measure everything out for you. We gave you a recipe card. Just throw this shit in the pan. And you, you and your kids got a nice nutrient dense meal. It is black families. Yeah. Um, and so all of that, all of those amazing things are happening in this space. I love it. I'm proud of you. Thank you. I'm very proud of you. Like you're, you're doing the work you were poured into and you're pouring into others. And I think that's what all of us should be doing. Like if you can get free, go set somebody else free. Set somebody else up to win. Absolutely. I do feel a deep obligation to do that because I wasn't, I wasn't born woke. I didn't get here. I look back at some of my Facebook and Instagram posts from girl. a couple years ago, and I, yes, I'm like, girl, take like this. You said down. that shit out loud. <laughs> I'm like, take this down. And thought it was deep. <laughs> I did. I thought it was so profound. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, but then somebody was able to lovingly check me. Somebody challenged me in a way that didn't make me feel ashamed or stupid or patronized or or canceled. Somebody leaned into me, right, instead of throwing me out. And so I feel a deep obligation to, to, to do the same thing. And I'm not interested in convincing folks who have already decided they're right. I know everybody ain't coming. But for those where I say something and they might say, oh, you know what, Sib? I'm going to sit in this for a minute. I'm going to weather this discomfort. There might be something there that I need to unpack, right? Or I never thought about it this way then I'm, I'm here for those folks. And I also try to keep myself, you know, humble as well, you know, and realizing I'm not above reproach. You know, I was traveling today and my deputy director hit me up and said, I think we should do a thing. And I was like, eh, I don't really want to talk to this person. I don't think anything productive is going to come from that exchange. And she said, you might be right, but here are our ideals. And we don't ghost black women and we don't abandon black women. And even if you think that the conversation won't yield any productive outcome, it's worth having. And I sat with that for a minute. And then I said, thank you for holding me accountable. I appreciate you because I knew that she was right. I knew that in that moment, somebody had to hold a mirror up to me and be like, mm, girl, you, you, you teetering on being a hypocrite. And I had to be willing to sit in that discomfort and acknowledge that. And that's what loving accountability looks like. Thank God for the deputy director mm -hmm. and the other women and men like them and others like them. Yep. Absolutely. Help us grow beyond ourselves. Get out of our own way. Get out of our own way. Absolutely. <laughs> Cause that's what it is. Cause it, it's sometimes it's, I want to be like, Oh, it's you. It's you. It's you. No, a lot of time it's me. It's me. It's me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the hard part. Cause you can't run from yourself. You can try. And there are lots of us who are out here in a lot of pain um, abusing all that variety of substances or engaging in behavior that's maladaptive because we are trying to run from ourselves. And no matter what you do, you just can't. No matter where you go, there you are. There you are. There you are. Thank you, Madam Tanya Denise Fields. Thank you, boo. <laughs> Thank you for this book. Thank you for opening up. Thank you for being you. Thank you, Demetra. I appreciate you. I really do. Thank you. And I'm proud of you too, by the way. You know, I've been, you know, I've been a follower of, of yours for a good long while. When you, when you jumped in my DMs, I swear to God, I slid, literally, I slid out of my seat and I was all snapping like, yes, I've been seen. <laughs> <laughs> so I appreciate you and I'm proud of all you've done and the ways in which you've given me language, you know, the stuff of like reading your stuff and us talking about our own ways in which we value ourselves. And it's okay to say no, full stop, you know, and it's okay to have boundaries, full stop. You've been one of those people that's helped give me the language or challenge language and deconstruct language. You've been one of those black women who's like helped me on this path of, of, of black radical joy. Thank you. I have tears in my eyes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> wow. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say it because I say it after every interview. I'm going to say it. Wasn't she amazing? Ugh. I'm so glad that she came to join us on the show. Whew. For those of you who have not picked up You Are Your Best Thing, and just for clarity, I don't get a kickback of anything off this book. 
And if it wasn't really amazing, I wouldn't be talking about it, even if one of my close friends wrote it, because I'm not going to have y'all in my inbox talking about, I bought this book because you told me to buy it and it was trash. Mm-mm. I don't want them problems. I'm good. Thanks. So that's, that's this week for Ratchet and Respectable. I did, as promised in a previous episode, I didn't lie about this. I did put the Don't Waste Your Pretty Vs on the site. So if you've been waiting for a white gold Don't Waste Your Pretty V, they are available now from small to 2X. So if you want one in your size, you may want to go to the site now. We also have the regular tees in white and gold and also pink and red. The books are back on sale. I'm signing books again. And also the coffee mugs. The sweatshirts are no longer on the site. I'll bring them back in the fall. And if you know me really, really well, if you've been a longtime listener of Ratchet and Respectable or a reader of my work or followed me online for quite some time, I think you know something's brewing. Some of you picked up on it because you know my social media habits and they're like, where you been? You ain't been just chatting. You ain't been posting. What you doing? I have learned not to make announcements until contracts are signed and checks are cleared. But there's a lot of goodness, potentially, coming down the pipeline. I look forward to making an announcement sooner than later. I would encourage you to get your Don't Waste Your Pretty stuff while it's still at the current price. (laughs) I'm joking. Sort of. Okay. That's it for this week's episode. We will talk again next week. I promise you. I promise you. I'm not lying this time. I promise you. Next week, we will be back with the regular format. Maybe Friday. I'm still trying to secure this interview that I want. It's not about this book. We're moving on from this book, at least for the sake of the podcast. So that's that. But thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you need some ratchet and respectable in your life between now and Friday... Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Demetria L. Lucas. And if you wanted to pick up those Don't Waste Your Pretty shirts, or the mugs, or the signed books, you can get them on DemetriaLLucas.com. All right, that is everything, or that's what I'm giving. (laughs) We'll talk again on Friday. Okay, bye. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.